welcome to the Regional Roundup, a production of Rocky Mountain Community Radio, a coalition of public and community radio stations in Colorado, Wyoming, Utah and New Mexico, including this one. I'm Maeve Conran, the coalition's managing editor, and today the Sundance Film Festival has just wrapped up in Utah. We'll check in with Emily Cohen from KHOL, who attended the festival. Well, this is, this is a major international festival and to have access to this level of culture of creativity is pretty remarkable. Gavin Dahl from KRCL in Salt Lake City brings us a review of a film that's screened at Sundance. Different responses to racism are at the core of two very funny films from this year's festival. Then Labour Union President Chris Smalls was at Sundance for a screening of the documentary film Union. There's nothing going to stop Uh, us from organizing ourselves unless we stop ourselves. Then to the Four Corners, where we'll hear from a Farmington, New Mexico musician who is channeling John Cage and his Navajo ancestors to honor those lost in the long walk. So, all righty, let's go ahead and get ready. One, two, three, and... And finally, We'll hear some poetry from the Poet Laureate of Lafayette, Colorado. What lenses we choose to see the world through and what lessons we choose to carry are subject to the influence by inheritance. So here I say good night. From Rocky Mountain Community Radio, it's the Regional Roundup. The Sundance Film Festival just wrapped up with films being screened on location in Park City and Salt Lake City, Utah, as well as online. Emily Cohen of KHOL in Wyoming attended the festival, which is now in its 40th season. And I asked her to share her observations. Well, you've just returned from the Sundance Film Festival. This is something I'm sure most people listening will be familiar with, but maybe not know a whole lot about. It takes place annually in Utah, but it has massive significance, not just for the filmmakers who get to have their work screened, but also for community members in the vicinity and in the broader region who get to participate in this major cultural event. So tell us exactly what's going on this year at the Sundance Film Festival. Then we'll dig into some of the films that you got to see. Well, the festival takes place both in Park City and in Salt Lake City. So there's many theaters where folks can see films. There's documentaries, there's feature films, there's shorts, there's animation. The Pretty much anything. And there's celebrities. Um, and I think the most amazing thing is it's surprisingly accessible. So you can go to films in the theater, but you can also watch some of the films online. Well, this idea of accessibility, the fact that we have such a major cultural event taking place in the Rocky Mountain West, meaning that folks from Wyoming, where you drove from, maybe neighboring states like Idaho, and of course, folks in Utah get to go to this event that we often think are just relegated to maybe Los Angeles or New York. Talk about the impact on the region of having that kind of accessibility to be able to go and participate in something like this. Well, this is is a major international festival. And to have access to this level of culture, of creativity, is pretty remarkable. You don't have to go to L.A. You don't have to go to New York or the Cannes Film Festival to see 
some amazing works. And now a lot of these films will be screened um, and streaming on the services like Netflix and Prime eventually. But it's exciting to be part of that from the jump, from this moment of inception of when it's really birthed into the public sphere. I think one of the exciting things about participating in festivals like this is you get to see the films, but you also get to participate in events like hearing from the filmmakers. But some of the magic just happens in the streets, in the coffee shops, in the bars, people just connecting with each other. Can you give us a sense of some of those activities that happen at Sundance? Well, there's certainly a lot of industry networking that is happening. You know, it's folks who are working on all sides of the film industry are meeting up for parties and coffee dates. And I'm on a WhatsApp group for documentary filmmakers. And so you get to meet people who are in your industry. And it's not often that you can do that, especially in coming from a place like Jackson, Wyoming, where it's a pretty small community and we don't have access to that many people who are working in in a similar sphere. You know, there was a flash mob for uh, Napoleon Dynamite um, that happened. And there's things like that. There's also a lot of talks There's talks on what it means to be a first-time filmmaker. Um, So there's professional development opportunities. And it's a big impact on the filmmakers themselves. I know there are many, many film festivals happening, but not all of them have the level of prestige, I suppose, that Sundance has. What does it mean, especially for maybe first-time filmmakers, but certainly independent filmmakers who actually get to get screened there? Well, I think a lot of... um, distribution deals can come out of this. Um, It's a huge amount of exposure to have that stamp of a Sundance premiere or Sundance screening means a lot to these filmmakers. And it was a surprisingly young crowd, actually, I would say. I mean, there were people from, uh, you know, all ages. But for example, there was a director's talk after the animated shorts. And most of the directors were there. And I'd say everyone was probably under the age of 35. It was pretty remarkable. So this is a really great way for folks to launch their careers. Well, you mentioned the animated shorts. I know that was one of the things that you got to see. You saw a couple of documentaries, one of them, a short documentary that has a very Wyoming connection as well about the Wind River Reservation. Tell us about that. It's called The Winding Path, and it is just a reflective and and beautifully shot film. And it's about an Eastern Shoshone medical student um, who's actually studying at the University of Utah. And she spent summers on the Wind River Indian Reservation helping her grandfather. As a child, I always anxiously awaited summer break when I can trade in my city life for time spent with my family on the Wind River Indian Reservation. And she dies, um, and she turns to drinking. So the film is really exploring grief. It's exploring substance abuse, um, connection to the land, and just the challenges that some indigenous people face. And it's a local, sort of local film. Being an urban Indian is really complicated because you have this geographic disconnection from your land and your community. And the other documentary that I saw was called Agent of Happiness, and I loved this. And it follows one of the so-called like agents, or I think what we would think of as a census taker, um, working for the Bhutanese government to measure people's happiness levels. The Bhutanese government is famous for having this happiness index, the, the gross national happiness index of sorts. And so this census taker, the main character, visits people from various walks of life. It's farmers families, asking them about 
their life. And it's just very poignant. Um, assessing things like how many cows do you have, but also how much do you worry? What kind of sleep are you getting? Um, and then he rates everyone on this this metric, an index of how happy they are. It's very elegantly filmed. There's a lot of tender moments. Well, you mentioned the animated shorts. You went to that and you saw the panel discussion as well with the folks featured in that. So when we talk about animated shorts, give us a sense of what that looks like. There's so many kinds of animation. Um, There's more traditional drawings, um, pen and ink, and then there's stopgap animation. Um, My favorite one was a stop animation or stopgap short called Bug Diner. edgy and silly and I definitely recommend watching that. Some of these were really violent. Some of them were really sexual so it was not really what you would think of as animation and it's definitely not for kids. Well I know this was your second time going to the festival so what were your big takeaways from this time either just from what happens in the community outside of the screenings or maybe something that you saw on screen? My big takeaway is just how refreshing it is to get out of town um, and be a part of something bigger than myself and getting outside of Wyoming and being part of this creative world of of film and of ideas and kind of getting a little bit of a, a jump start of, on what might be coming down the pike. Emily Cohen, Executive Director with KHOL in Jackson, Wyoming. Thanks so much for sharing your experiences from the Sundance Film Festival. Thanks for having me. Gavin Dahl of KRCL in Salt Lake City also covered the Sundance Film Festival and he recommends two comedies from this year's in-person lineup. Freaky Tales, the latest from the directing team of Anna Bowden and Ryan Fleck, is a stylish revisionist history romp. The pair made the excellent indie films Sugar, about a Latin ball player toiling in the minors in Iowa, and Half Nelson, starring Ryan Gosling as a drug-addicted teacher, which debuted at Sundance back in 2006, as well as the superhero flick Captain Marvel. In Freaky Tales, Bay Area cultural touchstone of the late 1980s are mashed up across four chapters intertwined by hella clever reveals with underdogs being the theme that ties them all together. Punks decide to fight back against skinheads. Female MCs tired of getting hit on by a sleazy officer at their day job accept an invite to join Too Short on stage for a rap battle and change their lives. A henchman, played by Pedro Pascal of The Mandalorian, confronts tragedy outside a video store during one last job before leaving behind his life of crime. And Jay Ellis of Insecure wows crowds as a meditating basketball star using sword fighting skills to avenge a heist of Golden State Warriors basketball team members while they're playing the LA Lakers in the playoffs. What I didn't see coming was the shockingly gory violence. It didn't turn me off because most of the damage is inflicted upon neo-Nazis. The crowd loved it. I loved it. Freaky Tales might turn into more of a cult classic than a box office hit. Variety reports executives from Sony Pictures Classics, Neon, and Netflix attended the premiere, and hopefully it will get a distribution deal.
The American Society of Magical Negroes premiered over the weekend and had a diverse crowd in stitches at Salt Lake City's Rose Wagner Performing Arts Center. The film is a satirical take on the term coined by Spike Lee about black supporting characters who don't have their own internal storylines. They only exist to support white protagonists reaching their goals. In this film, a wizard of sorts portrayed by David Alan Greer recruits a young man played by Justice Smith into a secret society of magical black folks whose job is soothing white people's anxieties. What's most daring about the film, written and directed by Kobe Libby, is how at first it pretends this is a good thing. The movie's magical Negroes monitor white fragility so they can redirect the fear into healthier outcomes for black folks. The construct only holds up briefly because it clearly promotes white supremacy to suggest black folks be valued according to their utility to whites. The corporate culture setting tees up clueless white privilege with hilarious results. Clients of the secret society are gauged by a white tears meter. While there are plenty of laughs and the film is likely to stir up controversy, I'm not convinced it needed to be a romantic comedy too, but maybe that will add to its mass appeal. Focus Features will release the film in theaters in March. For KRCL and Rocky Mountain Community Radio, I'm Gavin Dahl. Lara Jones was also part of the KRCL Community Radio's team coverage at the 2024 Sundance Film Festival, and she caught up with Amazon Labour Union President Chris Smalls at a screening of the documentary film Union that took place in Salt Lake City. Union follows a group of current and former Amazon workers in New York City's Staten Island as they take on one of the world's largest and most powerful companies in the fight to unionize. If you've been following that fight, you'll know they were successful, to a point. After a screening of Union during the Sundance Film Festival, I asked now Amazon Labor Union President Chris Smalls for words of encouragement for union members and supporters in Utah, a right-to-work state. Bessemer, Alabama is a right-to-work state. I visited them as well when they were organizing, and they're still organizing. Um, there's nothing going to stop uh, us from organizing ourselves unless we stop ourselves. So my message to the workers is just... Um, Organize your workplace, no matter what the, the legal side is. But you can always have collective bargaining power. And you can't do that as an individual. You're going to do that as a collective. Smalls also had words of warning for folks who don't support unions. Yeah, in the next few years, one out of every four Americans is going to know somebody who work at Amazon or work there themselves. So this fight right now and the one that has started a few years ago, it's their fight right now. This is your neighbors, your loved ones, your friends, your family, your mom, your dad, your cousins, your brothers. Everybody in, they, in their community are connected to Amazon. And that's something that we have to understand that we're allowing this company to change society. But we can reverse that. In a post-screening Q&A, the union president said he spent the last year traveling the country and the world in support of unionization efforts. Right over the border, they have way more progressive laws in Canada. Uh, I just came from Sweden, 90% um, union density. They're, they're, they're shutting down Elon Musk as we speak. So we got to look at what labor is offering in this country, which ain't much. You know, um, these laws need to be changed. We need a labor party. And when you think about labor leaders, we need more labor, labor leaders of color. Amazon Labor Union President Chris Smalls 
Two years after winning union certification at Amazon warehouse JFK 8 in Staten Island, the ALU says the trillion-dollar company has yet to come to the bargaining table. For KRCL and Rocky Mountain Community Radio, I'm Laura Jones. You're listening to the Regional Roundup from Rocky Mountain Community Radio, a coalition of non-profit radio stations throughout the Rocky Mountain region, including this one. I'm Maeve Conran. A Farmington, New Mexico musician is channeling John Cage and his Navajo ancestors to honour those lost in the long walk. Clark Adamidas of KSUT and KSJD has the story of a musical performance that will run for four and a half years. Delbert Anderson is a jazz musician and composer in Farmington, New Mexico. A few years ago, he was having dinner with a musician friend north of San Francisco. It was a sushi spot. (laughs) We were waiting on a table talking about different compositions and the idea of silence came about. The conversation turned toward the use of silence in musical compositions. And then he brought up John Cage and we talked about, you know, his famous piece, the silent piece. Was it 433? 433 is among the most famous works by 20th century composer John Cage. In the piece, the performing musicians sit at concert rest, poised to play their instruments, but never doing so. As they waited for a table, Anderson and his friend riffed on John Cage's use of silence. He started to say that there's this other piece, it's like 600 years long, and I thought, whoa, that's, you know, pretty cool. I never knew about that. The 600-year-long piece is called As Slow As Possible. It's a series of notes performed over centuries, with intermittent periods of silence lasting months. It's a performance that outlives the performers. I just thought it was the coolest thing, like, wow, 600 years and you're only going to average be there 70 to 100 years of this composition alive. It was these conversations that inspired Delbert Anderson's own experiments with silence and time. I want to do a piece that's long, but within someone's lifetime. Alrighty, well, we'll go ahead and get started. Recently, Anderson launched a performance of a piece he calls The Long Walk. The piece is short compared to the John Cage work that inspired it, a total of 50 notes played over four and a half years. But where John Cage was focused on conceptual abstractions of sound and time, Anderson has woven cultural history into his composition. Um, Thanks for coming out. My name is Delbert Anderson. In December, Anderson gathers with community members and musicians at an art gallery in Farmington. The performance tonight is a single note played for a 30-second interval, a concert D. And those of you who want to participate, you're welcome to sing the note as well. You can hold the note as long as you you want. Some people just do a simple bop, and that's it. Each note of the composition comes every month or two over 1,674 days. That's the length of time Navajo people were forced from their homeland in the 1860s by the U.S. government. We thought it was just kind of a march, but they were well taken care of, and, you know, they eventually got 
sent back home so what's the big deal kind of thing so when i started seeing how like you know our ancestors were treated it was mind-blowing in his research anderson learned navajo people were malnourished and weren't clothed properly they were forced to walk 450 miles to an internment camp in new mexico during some periods 20 to 30 starved each week these are the details performers and audience members consider in the moments before the note is played. So, all righty, let's go ahead and get ready. One, two, three, and... The musicians hold the D note as we reflect on a history that's more than a hundred years old. Following the note, there's silence for some time. Awesome. Yeah. When I played that concert uh, D on my trombone, I just felt echoes of like generations of, of ancestors. Sam Botter is a trombonist and a native Hawaiian who lives in Farmington. It was spiritually very grounding. And I think I really felt it in the silence after I played. Like I played the note and then there was that silence for me. The note was still going, but I had to close my eyes and just kind of sit and think with it for a little bit. The 50th and final note will be performed on June 1st, 2028. In the intervening time, several dozen additional notes will be played. Between each of those notes, there are periods of silence. Silence that reminds us of the deprivations and uncertainties Navajo people faced during their long walk in the 1860s. For KSUT and KSJD, I'm Clark Adamitis. And we finish the show with some poetry. Karen Rayforth, one of the hosts of KGNU's weekly LGBTQ show, Outsources, caught up with the Poet Laureate of Lafayette in Boulder County, Colorado. My stage name is Bay Speaks. I normally just go by Z. Uh, pronouns are they, them. I am a Colorado-born, in Boulder, indigenous, Native American, Mexican, like, I'm just brown. I do poetry and I engage in other art forms as well. And a lot of my focus is, is towards social justice, but it also takes other shapes and forms and different interests as well. I'm also uh, the chieftain of Balamna, which is my Mayan tribe uh, that we come from. A lot of different identities and mm -hmm. um, people you hold dear and communities that you're involved in. I love it. Honored and humbled by it. It's only been almost two years since you started being a poet laureate for Lafayette. What kinds of things have you done as a poet laureate? I, I think most people don't even know. What does a poet laureate do? On paper, the position for poet laureate is that you are to engage with a community and promote literacy. For me, there's a little bit more to that. I want to just promote poetry and art and connect people and just do what I can with this, I guess, quote unquote, power or influence, help be a catalyst for new things to come up and also to just make poetry digestible, um, especially as a person who took no interest in poetry in the beginning, making others comfortable and aware of the power of poetry is like my top mission, I think, and also to provoke different thoughts. It's been a learning curve because I am the first poet laureate of Lafayette in over 60 plus years, I think, if I remember correctly. A lot of the criteria and like what to do, what do we do with this person and stuff like that kind of just went up in the air. 
So I spend a lot of my time, thankfully, engaging with young people in introducing poetry. I hosted a um, poetry competition with the WOW Museum down in Lafayette, and that was beautiful, a huge honor. I've done plenty of workshops for both young people and for just any age people. Um, I've done videos. I've uh, gone to different uh, events that I've never thought I would be in. I think one of my like more memorable ones for sure is um, doing an art gallery tour using poetry, which... I never thought that that was possible, but people were like, hey, can you do a tour of our art? Like, can you do poetry on our art? I'm like, yeah, sure, cool. Do a tour of it though. Like you have to walk around with these people for like a couple of rounds. And I was supposed to create poems off of that art. So I was creating art off of art. Like how would a poet give you a tour of this art that's already up to interpretation and basically have a poet give you their interpretation and walk you along through that? What kinds of things were you doing with children or, or the youth? I have the philosophy of just break everything down because these are young people. They're going to learn eventually the more complicated stuff of poetry. It's just getting them through the door. So one of my favorite things that I've been doing is implementing both magic and poetry together. So the concept is, or at least the challenge is, is to inspire wonder. That's the topic that you need to write about. And kids already, by default, have a very wild imagination. Mm -hmm. So just giving them a bit extra to feed like their imaginative state, mm -hmm. it, it blossoms a lot of interesting ideas and different concepts that are written down on paper. And I don't tell them, oh, write a haku, make sure it's five syllables and stuff like that. I give those as possible examples if they require more structure. Mm -hmm. But for me, I'm just like, write whatever you feel right now down. Mm -hmm. So um, it, it works as two purposes. One, I have their attention because they're like, oh, look at the cards, look at the lights, like, look at, look at all, like, what's he doing and stuff mm -hmm. like that. So I have their attention as that way. But then at the end, I do the ultimate mag magic trick. And then I just leave them stunned. And then that emotion right now is is beautiful. It's an amazing state that they're in. And I take advantage of it by like, cool, take a sheet of paper, take a pencil or a pen or whatever, write it down, draw a picture. What are you thinking? What are you feeling right now? That becomes poetry. Are you going to do a poem for us today? Yeah. My tongue does not shoot arrows. And yet... We speak in such terms in a state of war, giving thoughts that are not equivalent to tossing stones to your head. So why cover your head when the conversation turns constructive as if boulders are next in line to draw blood? My heart does not speak for interpretations, and yet transcriptions from translations never find their way to your understanding. So why conclude to ridicule and criticism, though you've never picked up the pages and read them. Shall we place the faults in the consecutive seconds that have just passed away since each word was spoken? For the seconds that have run have yet to come, and for the split second that counts that we just experienced. Theory of relativity, for all is relative to our state of standing. What lenses we choose to see the world through and what lessons we choose to carry 
are subject to the influence by inheritance. So here, I say, good night. And you wrote that this morning? Yeah, it was like the first thing that I did. I, I was like, there's these words stuck in my head. Pick up the phone, write it down, go back to sleep. That was Z Bass Speaks, Lafayette, Colorado's Poet Laureate, speaking with Karen Rayforth, one of the hosts of Outsources on KGMU. You've been listening to The Regional Roundup, a production of Rocky Mountain Community Radio, a network of public and community radio stations in Colorado, Wyoming, Utah and New Mexico, including this one. Thanks to Emily Cohen of KHOL and Gavin Dahl and Lara Jones of KRCL for their coverage of this year's Sundance Festival. And thanks to Clark Adamidas of KSUT and KSJD and Karen Rayforth of KGNU. Our theme music is Take Me Somewhere by Joel Adam Russell. I'm Maeve Conran. Thanks for listening.